May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. I've always been powerfully drawn to the epistle of James, from which the lectionary is going to have us reading all through the month of September. When, as a student, I first began to take a really active hold on my Christian faith, it was this epistle that most caught my imagination. To be sure, the Gospels were essential, but again and again it was James who kept asking me, so if you believe this stuff, what are you going to do about it? So we heard tonight, if a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, What's the good of that? For me, it was a key question. I'd begun to work with kids from the inner city, had my first real glance at what it looked like to live in poverty, and it wasn't pretty. Faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead, says James, to me, and I was convicted. If I was going to call myself a Christian, I'd better find real ways to enact that because I didn't want to have deadness in my faith. Well, one of the jobs that I stumbled into during my university years was with a juvenile probation unit where I was in charge of running a Saturday afternoon work experience program. It was pretty modest stuff. We dug gardens, raked leaves, washed windows, delivered flyers. At the end of each session, the kids received a few dollars for their work, and I put an attendance and participation checkmark on the logbook beside their names. Not exactly life-changing, but it was something. As the supervisor of this program, I got to spend time working with these young men, building trust, breaking down some of those barriers between us, in this case me, a university student from a very stable home in the suburbs, and them, mostly Aboriginal kids from the inner city with extended police records and nothing approaching stability in their home lives. Well, during the summer, there'd been plenty of jobs available to our little work crew, but in the winter, we were pretty much limited to delivering flyers. On one particularly cold day, this one kid sat shivering in the van, wearing only a jean jacket against the wintry chill. It was all he owned by way of a jacket, he told me. And every day he would button it as tight as he could and run from his front door of his house the five blocks to his school, trying to keep warm. And didn't I hear the words of James that to say, go in peace, keep warm, eat your fill, and that yet not supply bodily needs is pretty much useless? Faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. And so I knew exactly what I needed to do for this kid. You see, I, sitting in the van, 
was wearing a nice new down jacket, while at home I had a second one in perfectly good condition. Why did I have two jackets, you might ask? Well, because I'd seen the new one in the store, and I liked it better than the old one, so I bought it. Anyone here ever made a decision like that? Yeah. I dug out the second jacket, tucked it in my car, and the next time I saw this young guy, I gave it to him. Oh, didn't I feel good about my active faith that day. Delighted with his new jacket, he covered off his flyer duty without a shiver. When I saw him in a midweek program, he was again wearing the jacket, and he told me that he could now walk to school in the mornings. Wouldn't James be so very impressed by my active faith? A couple of weeks later, this young guy arrived at the work program wearing only his jean jacket. Where's your warm jacket, I asked him. But later I realized I was really asking, where's my jacket? I gave it to my uncle, he said. You gave it to your uncle? Why'd you do that? Because he got a job, and he works outside every day, and he needs it more than I do. Right. Well, that was the moment I realized two things. First of all, I realized I hadn't so much given him my old jacket as offered it on a permanent loan. I was still invested in it and holding on to it. I was feeling good about seeing how happy he was wearing it, and so when he didn't wear it, I was vaguely offended. Secondly, in his response to the need of his uncle, this young man put my piety to shame. Yes, he'd grown up poor in a family ravaged by alcoholism. He'd known nothing of the security and comfort that I'd known growing up, and he'd certainly never read the Epistle of James. But what he did was to stop me in my tracks, push me to wrestle more deeply with what James had been trying to say to me all along. And of course, the thing is, that in the verses that precede the ones about faith without works, the big issue James is flagging has to do with the way we make our judgments, judgments based on appearance. When we imagine that those dressed in fine clothes are somehow more deserving than those dressed poorly, that there's more to be gained from courting the privileged than in welcoming someone who is poor or in need, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James asks. Hadn't I assumed that I was the one, the only one, who could be the real giver? And he, this young man, could be merely the recipient of my charity. Well, the manner in which this young guy unsettled me and pressed me to think more deeply about what the gospel might actually require of us has a bit of an interesting parallel in the story from Mark 7 that we heard read aloud tonight. That story offers one of the more perplexing pictures of Jesus, in which when a Gentile woman, a Syrophoenician, 
comes to him and begs that he frees her daughter from some kind of demonic oppression, he seems to simply blow her off. Let the children be fed first, he says, for it's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Did you hear the force of those words spoken by Jesus to a Gentile woman? As he basically denies her request with a racial slur, calling Gentiles dogs. But she's pretty tenacious. And so she answers, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. To which Jesus then replies, For saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. And she goes home, and she finds her daughter as well. All is right. All is good. Except that his initial refusal is still there in the text, in black and white. What are we to think? Now, one way to read that back and forth, that Jesus speaking so harshly, is to see it as a case of him testing the woman's faith. Another is to imagine that this exchange was really a, a kind of a loaded and playful banter with a twinkle evident in his eye the whole time through. Maybe. But I think we need to consider the possibility that what this woman did, this Syrophoenician woman, what she did was to press the very human Jesus to get past his hardwired cultural assumptions. Assumptions that say Gentiles are outsiders, Gentiles are dogs, less value in the sight of God than Jews. To get past those assumptions and to fully enact the messianic promise that is his calling. She kind of almost wakes him up. Or, in the words of N.T. Wright, Jesus has placed a time bomb beside those Jewish institutions that stressed ethnic separateness. And he's now confronted with the need to explode it sooner than he'd expected. Though Jesus, like many of the Jews of his day, clearly envisioned a future time when Gentiles would come to share the blessings of the kingdom, he seems surprised that it's all happening this quickly. No more privilege for the children. All can be healed. All must hear. And soon. What Bishop Wright is getting at is that this woman actually ignites the time bomb that is Jesus' ministry. She actually maybe is waking him up to the fullness of the gospel he embodies, pushing him beyond his human assumptions to carry a more fully incarnated presence to the world. No more privilege for the children. All can be healed. All must hear and soon. Well, just as I was shaken from my assumptions by that kid from the North End, perhaps here Jesus is really and truly pressed by this woman, an outsider, a person from the margins, no status and no claim to authority. And yet she pushes him to embody the fullness of gospel 
a gospel which, in the words of Simeon in Luke 2, is meant to be a light to lighten the Gentiles. Pay attention to your assumptions, assumptions about your own faithfulness and corner on the truth, assumptions, too, about who belongs, who has value, and who might have the word you most need to hear. As the New Testament scholar Matt Skinner challenges, look for the Syrophoenician woman in the back row of church this Sunday. Maybe she's the one whose reputation discourages her from getting involved, or the one who slips out during the last hymn to avoid having to mix with the churchy insiders. But she keeps coming back, fiercely convinced that if anything we preach week in and week out is true, then it's got to be true for her too. Watch your assumptions. Amen.